Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy, howdy, friends, and welcome to Grass Talk Radio. I'm speaking to you today from the fabulous outdoor studio down here in Americus, Georgia, at uh, the Kingdom of Lairdonia. And uh, I am standing out here in the barn. My wife is today, as usual, you know, working from home online. And it's a little difficult to uh, do this inside the house. Plus, Jackson is, um, I, I think he actually starts school next week, but they're doing it online. But, you know, he's busy with his... Um, music creation stuff and it's it's kind of noisy around the house so i just come out here in the barn and uh this is you know my you might call it my man cave but where i'm standing right now is um just outside i'm i'm standing precisely where bob mcisaac stood and played the guitar when cedar hill played and six, uh, five other bands at my little festival that I used to hold out here. I'm, I'm actually standing in what I would call the stage area. And boy, don't I wish that today was the day of that festival. I, I wish that we were having a festival here tonight or this weekend or something. But alas, not much going on. You know, it's uh, pretty quiet out there which is uh, very depressing to me personally. You know, I want to come on here and I, I want to talk up bluegrass and I want, to, I want to convince you to get off the couch and go pick. And uh, there's not a whole lot of places to go pick, but I did have a, my second little jam session out here uh, this past Saturday evening. I threw out my usual invitation to the local pickers down here i said hey i'm having a little jam session if you're not sick and you're not afraid come you know if you want to pick and if you don't that's fine too you know like i've said many times i'm not here to tell you what to do but i'm going to tell you what i did i just had a little jam session and we had uh had four pickers I hear Sadie out there barking. We'll get we'll get around to dogs in a minute. <laughs> yeah, she comes in right on cue. I'm sure the rooster, Carl, will start crowing in a minute. And, and you'll notice the atmosphere. I'm making no effort whatsoever today to try to shield you from the influences of Mother Nature. You will hear cicadas. You will hear birds. You will hear, you know, little Tweety birds and crows. And I, from where I'm looking, I can see buzzards circling. I don't know why they always tend to circle over me, but, uh, <laughs> and I see a hawk over there circling too. I'm just outside. We'll come back. We'll come back to uh, talking about the, uh, natural environment and so forth here shortly but i want to tell you about the jam session so saturday night uh had a little picking had four had a banjo player had a guitar player had a mandolin player 
and me, and I, I pretty much played bass the whole evening. So we had a good little four-piece setup, same kind of thing you would uh, hear if you heard, let's say, the Dillards. You know, we didn't have a fiddle player, is all I'm saying, and no dobro. I had my dobro, but I never pulled it out because we didn't have anybody to play bass. So I just stayed on the bass, and uh, we had a good time. Oh, and just picked a couple hours, and it was the usual thing. I threw the invitation out to the lo local pickers because our little jam session that we generally have been doing for years on Tuesday night, they're not doing for various regulatory and uh, other reasons. They're not doing it. So, and believe me, that guy has enough on his mind without, you know, trying to keep us happy and give, give us a place to pick. So I just toss it out to those guys like, you know, if you want to pick and you're not sick, and you're not afraid or whatever, you know, I'm having a little picking, come on over. So we did. We picked for, I don't know, three hours or thereabouts and uh, had a good time. And before the night was out, Everybody was playing each other's instruments. Uh, I pulled out my low-strung, you might call it a la John Hartford banjo, and brought it out and, and was letting Wayne try it out. And, uh, man, it sounded really good. And he was playing that low-tuned D banjo. And Dave, the mandolin player, said, oh, I, I love playing in D. This is good. And uh, Steve, who was on guitar, went down to drop D tuning, and man, it was it was such a you know a, a sonic a refreshing sonic change from playing in G and A and you know the typical bluegrass jammers type you know keys. It just dropped everything down. It just sounded really good. It was just really like organic and stuff. Anyway, had a good time jamming. Uh, planning on doing that again here very soon and, and you know i wish you were around here whoever you are and wherever you are i know we've got listeners all over the place i got contacted uh, this past week from a guy in australia i don't know where in australia he didn't say um uh, but he was it sounded like he was a sailor in port and he was trying to download my claw hammer banjo videos and was having difficulty, and ultimately he decided that it was probably his crummy Wi-Fi, and that uh, he would uh, he would contact me and try again when he reached a another port. So you know, literally, we've got people listening to this thing all over the world. I I, I might have mentioned this once before. Had a had a guy. I think he is now retired from this occupation. But he was a essentially a riverboat pilot running up and down the Mississippi and the Ohio River, um, you know, pulling barges and stuff like this. And I think I did talk about him once before. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to think there's, you know, some guy uh, drifting, you know, while working his way up and down the Mississippi River uh, with grass talk radio coming out of the speakers there up in the wheelhouse. That That's pretty cool. And I know there are people all over the place. Anyway, so let's see. I brought you up to date on my little picking sessions. 
Um, trying to think what else. What else was it I was going to tell you? I'm telling you what, I'm feeling very lethargic right now. And uh, we are in the dog days of summer. And dog days, I think, you know, if you look at it astronomically, it has to do with the, the reappearance or the rising of the star Sirius. Are you serious? <laughs> and the date that it becomes visible again in the sky has something to do with, I'm, I'm no astronomer or astrologer, but uh, that's what signals the dog days of summer. And I think, you know, astronomically speaking, it's from something like July the 3rd through August the 11th. Don't quote me on that, but more or less, that's it. But dog days has a broader definition. And down south here, Dog days simply refers to that really hot late part of summer. And, and that is very evident right here at my place. Now, if you're up in New Hampshire or something and you're a gardener or something, you're probably still getting squash and zucchini and, you know, you've got a little bit of cooler weather than down here. But around here, you get all that stuff early in the spring. Well, early and throughout spring and early summer. My zucchini plants and squash plants have keeled over. They're just, they're, they're non-existent. There's one squash plant that's struggling to make progress, but it just gets too hot. Even the fig tree, got this big fig tree. It's probably about 15 feet tall at the center. Big round uh, fig tree. And I've been picking figs. Well, the ones I can reach, making fig preserves. and But that even that fig tree is suffering from the heat and the, the sun beating down. And you, you get this sort of laid back. I think it, it may have something to do with why people who grew up in the South speak differently. I, I think it's just hard to muster up the energy to talk quickly you know you, everything kind of slows down it's it's the it would be the perfect time to sit on your front porch and i don't know shoot flies off the, the front gate with your 22 rifle and while you sip a mint julep it's just real easy to you got to to survive in the south you gotta back down so i find myself doing everything between 5 30 and 7.30 in the morning, get up, do whatever I got to do, like move all that hay. The other day I had to move all that hay so I could clear that all in bales of hay out of the area where we're going to pick. I'm doing that first thing. And then you kind of get your second wind as you see that sun dropping down, just about to drop below the treetops. Things start to cool off a little bit. Plus you get those afternoon thunder showers popping up. And so you get some clouds and you say, well, maybe I'll mow for an hour, you know. So you kind of, you become diurnal, which is active in the, at dawn and dusk. And in the daytime, you just sit around and uh, sulk, <laughs> depending, depending upon your mindset, you know. Uh, that's what I do. I sit around sulk and 
moan and groan about, you know, why there's no bluegrass happening and stuff like that. And you look out at the dog, our dog here, she's what I call an average Pyrenees. Some people have great Pyrenees, ours is just average. Sadie Joe, and she's just laying there and she's digging a hole. She's got holes all over the place, but she digs down trying to find some cool ground. And it just gets deeper and deeper. And one day she's going to pop up in Beijing, China, because she's dug her hole so deep. She's just trying to get down as low as she can and get some of that cooler temperature from the ground. Anyway, she's out there panting and, you know. But, you know, fall's coming. It's coming. I see Jackson has just come out of the house. He's over there messing around with a hula hoop. Hey, Jackson, you want to say hi to everybody? Come over here. Let's bring Jackson over here. So, Jackson, and when you talk, you won't get about about there. So, uh, hi. When when does school start? Uh, I'm not sure. I think maybe Monday. Yeah. Yeah. So. You excited about it? Yeah, sort of. Sort of, just to why to break the boredom. Yeah. So you're going to be going to school or you're going to be doing online school? Uh, online school. How do you like that? You did that toward the end of the year. How yeah, did you like that? It's a, Mom says that they're doing it differently this year, but I'm not sure. It's like I'm not, sure they'll, yeah. they'll fill you in on all the details. Yeah. But the good thing is you don't have to eat that weird food yeah, in the cafeteria. The mystery meat. <laughs> right, mystery meat. Yeah. yeah. Well, it'll be good, though. Will you be able to, like, hang out and talk to your friends over Zoom think, and stuff? I think, yeah. I sure hope so. Yeah. How are they going to do band? I don't know. Yeah. So, are you looking forward to schools actually opening up where you can yeah. go back, get back to normal and stuff? Yes. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, what have you been doing musically lately? What's your latest musical project? Um... Just basically just a ton of random ideas. Yeah. Nothing that I've actually developed enough to call it anything good. <laughs> That's what I think about all my tunes. Uh. So, so uh, you do have the uh, four-track EP yes. up for sale, and you've sold a couple of those. Uh. So maybe you ought to tell people thanks for buying it. Buy my EP. <laughs> no, you're supposed to say thanks for buying my EP. Uh, but if you already bought the EP, thanks for buying my EP. If you didn't buy the EP, buy my EP. <laughs> he's, see, he's just like his old man, always peddling something. <laughs> All right, Jackson. Well, thanks a bunch. I'm going to okay. continue on with the podcast, and you continue on with doing whatever you're doing. Okay. okay. See you, son. Ah, yes. Okay, so let's get to the uh, main topic today. I was, I was, got up this morning. I was, I know we're in the dog days, and I'm, I'm feeling pretty dogged out right now. And uh, it reminded me of a little article that I wrote. And the origins of this article, well, it begins with me playing around in the backyard with our dogs. And this was quite a few years ago. This is probably 15 years ago. And I had this mandolin newsletter that once a month or so I would send out a, an email newsletter thing. To people who had bought my books, which were at that time Mantle Masterclass and Mantle Training Camp. And I had this little newsletter where people could write in questions and 
you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot happening. I don't even know if Facebook and that kind of thing even existed back then. But I wrote this article, and it was called, it is called, Lessons from the Dog. D-A-W-G, and everybody knows who the dog is. That's, of course, the great David Grisman. And so the title of it was Lessons from the Dog. Now, that article has been up on my website, buried in the archives of past uh, newsletters, which you can still find there. Um, and I was asked a, a few years after that to, to do a book for Watch and Learn. They had, I'm probably told this before, and if, if so, forgive me, it's getting impossible to remember what I've said and what I haven't said. So, you know, if it seems like deja vu, I apologize. Watch and Learn, who is a publisher of books, you've probably seen them in music stores. You go in there and they've got the harmonica primer and they've got the, you know, books on how to play the keyboards and all kind of stuff. And one of their books that I really like is called the Bluegrass Fake Book. 150 songs, you know, including 50 gospel tunes. You know, it's, it's a bluegrass songbook, fake book. That's the kind of stuff that they have produced over the years. And they had a beginning mandolin course written by uh, Bert Casey uh, called Mandolin Primer. So when, when I came on board to do videos and other things for them, I didn't go back and rehash the beginner stuff that he had done because I thought, well, you know, Bert's got his book that lays out the basics of how to get started, how to tune, how to play a few chords, and how to play, whatever, 10 songs, and how to read the notation and, and tablature and stuff. So I was like, well, you know, I don't want to cut into their sales of that. And at that time, I did not have my own beginning course. So I just kind of picked up where that left off. And I, as I started doing the videos, I would say, you know, if you need a little introduction on how to read tab, you know, go look at Bert's book, Mandolin Primer. Well, eventually I came out with my own videos that describe those things. And, you know, we moved along. And I began referring less and less to Bert's book, but they were still selling it in the music stores, you know, like 4,000 music stores around the country. But they didn't have a second book. So if, if you worked your way through the first book, which was Mandolin Primer, they didn't have a follow-up book. So they said, hey, Brad, would you write a book, you know, just giving people more songs and more material things they can play that would you know, not be like insanely difficult or insanely easy. Just, you know, some intermediate stuff, something to give some people something to play once they've learned the tunes out of the Primer book. So I was like, sure, okay. So I created a book for them, which has 32 solos to 27 tunes. And I think I've talked about this before. This book, I've made an arrangement with watch and learn where I can sell on my own site downloadable versions of this book. So it is available on my on my site and in my store. If you go to payhip.com slash Bradley Laird and you can click the little mandolin heading 
and you'll find it quicker that way. Or you can just scroll down through all the, I don't know, 80, 80 something products and you'll find it. It's called Mandolin Songbook by Bradley Laird. So it's 32 uh, solos to 27 tunes. It's a variety of material. Um, I'll just let you look at that. I'll put a link on the show notes page for today's episode, and you all know how to find that. Go to Grass Talk Radio, slide down to the mini description for today's episode, and click that, and that's the show notes for this episode. I'll put a link to the Mandolin Songbook if any of you want to take a look at it. Um, and all of the tunes are also uh, recorded so that you can hear how they sound. You can hear me playing them. And most of them are at two different speeds. So one is really slow and one is a little quicker. It's not really jam tracks for, you know, okay, I've mastered this and now it's time to, you know, really crank it up. I didn't go that, that fast with them because it's a learning tool. It's just so you can hear what is written on the page and then be able to compare that to what you're doing and, and you know, answer the question, am I playing what he has written? Well, you can really hear the cicadas cranking up. Anyway, in that book, 32 pages, when you print a book, printers have certain requirements. And that is, like if you open up a book to the center, look, this is a stapled book, the physical book, the PDF, this wouldn't matter. But if you look at each sheet of paper in the book is 11 by 17 folded in half. So each sheet constitutes four pages. So this one sheet of paper, you know, has page 25, 26, 27, 28 on it. The next sheet down, and all printers know this kind of stuff, pagination, has page 23, 24, and 29, and 30. So each sheet in the book constitutes four numbered pages. Anyway, as we get through this book, and they're adding the copyright stuff at the beginning and the chord charts at the end, Bert says to me, well, look, we've got some pages that are going to be blank. Have you got anything to put in there? Just give me something to kind of fill up these pages here. And I thought, well, I got these articles. Let's just put some articles in there. So I grabbed a few articles from my old newsletter, and we filled out the rest of the book and it actually became interesting enough to watch and learn that they decided to expand the book by a couple of more sheets to include these articles that I laid on them. So what I want to do today is, first of all, if you have the book, thanks for buying the book. If you bought it from watch and learn, I appreciate the 25 cents I got. Hey, thanks. Or 50 or whatever it is. If you bought it from my store, hey, you know, I appreciate the whatever, four bucks or something that I keep from that. Or ten, I don't know how much it is. Anyway, I do better when you buy it directly from me, so I'm just, I'm just saying. Anyway, or if you read this article way back in like 2006 or whenever I wrote it, and you were a subscriber to the newsletter... Uh, that's pretty cool, too. Uh, you didn't get to hear it in my own voice. So what I'm going to do today with the glorious chorus of cicadas and crows standing here in the heat in the dog days of summer, I'm going to read to you 
the article called Lessons from the Dog. And again, dog is spelled D-A-W-G. So here we go. I'm just going to read the article to you. Oh, and before I get into the article, I want to say something else. The bonus episode where I suggested, you know, everybody send in an email, tell us all a little bit about yourself, uh, the do me a favor. And, well, I've been reading some of those. And so I had a stack of printouts of emails that people had sent me. And, you know, on the left were the ones that I've already read, and on the right were the ones I haven't read yet. Well, in cleaning up the barn the other day, I got the stacks all mixed up. And I don't know which ones I've read and which ones I haven't. I remember talking about uh, one of our friends, a listener, Doug Bissell. I remember mentioning Doug in the podcast and saying that I had read his email. And I, you know what? I'm not sure if I did or didn't now. I've got the stacks all mixed up, so I've got to go back to bonus episode nine and listen to all of the episodes since that one to figure out which ones I've read and which ones I haven't. It's, it reminds me, let me tell you a little story. My first job was working at the newspaper in Jonesboro, Georgia. It was called News Daily, and my father worked there. He was the circulation manager in Jonesboro, Georgia at this little you know, hometown newspaper. He was a circulation manager. So he got me and my brother a job working in the back room, you know, in the press room, we'd catch off papers and tie bundles and print the mailing list and all this kind of stuff. And one of my jobs was to come in on Tuesday after school and run the mailing list. Now the mailing list, this is pre-computer days. This was probably back in 73, 74. They didn't have a computer. I don't know if there was a computer in the building. But they still maintain mailing lists. So let's say your Uncle Henry lives up in Tennessee and he subscribes to the Jonesboro newspaper because he wants to keep track of what's going on in his hometown or something like that. So you had this mailing list of newspapers that were mailed out to people all around the country who had, for whatever reason, some interest in the town of Jonesboro, Georgia, or Clayton County, Georgia in general. Well, the way they did it, the way that mailing list technologically was handled back in those days was each person who subscribed by mail had a little plate, a little, it was about the size of a business card, and it was a little aluminum frame, pretty thin, probably about a sixteenth of an inch thick. It was a little frame of aluminum, and the center of that little frame was a piece of silk. And I can't explain exactly how it worked, but it was essentially a silk screen. So this, this little plate, when it was new, had some sort of coating on that silk. And they could put this little thing into a special typewriter with, you know how an old-fashioned typewriter would come and just bang the paper, impact the paper. Well, this typewriter would cut that little coating on the little silkscreen card. So they could type, you know, Henry Smith, Route 
2, Box 28, Spring Hill, Tennessee, in the zip code. And they would type it, and it would impact that little piece of silk. Then they would set it aside and do the next one. So for every person on the mailing list, there was one of these little address plates. And it was a silk screen. So these were filed in trays. So you'd have this tray about, I don't know, two feet long with a whole bunch of these stacked up. And the secretary who typed these would put that your little silk screen address card, silk screen thing, file it by zip code. They were all in zip code order. So that ultimately when you printed the mailing list, and I'm getting around to what I did as a kid, when you printed it, the printout from all these plates would come out in zip code order. So this particular uh, newspaper, and I believe we were actually running the Fayette County News on Tuesday because they ran some papers for surrounding counties, had about eight trays in zip code order, and there was a little card in the front of the, the drawer that, you know, said, you know, 00001 through, you know, like... 10168. And so each each little drawer was carefully and meticulously kept in order. And if somebody dropped a subscription, they would go out there and thumb through these little little silkscreen little plates, pull that person out, just chunk it in a box. Maybe they'll resubscribe later. And any new subscribers, they would fumble through these little things and very carefully place that in the correct order. So here was what I did when I was like 14 years old. My job was to come in and run the mailing list. And the way it worked, they had this machine, this crazy machine, kind of a Rube Goldberg, it looked like a Rube Goldberg, Goldberg contraption mixed with a Singer sewing machine, mixed with, you know, it was like this crazy little machine. Not that big, about, the, about as big as your grandma's old treadle sewing machine. And the way it worked, it had a big roll of paper, about four inches wide and about 10 inches in diameter. This big, giant roll of paper, kind of like adding machine tape. It was just paper. And that hung off the back of the machine. It was fed through the rollers and the little, little wheels that would move that paper along. And on the left side of the machine was this little rack. And on the right side, that was up above the table of the machine. And on the right side was a, a little rack about two feet deep that went down. So what I would do when I would get there to run the mailing list was pull out drawer one very carefully with about 200 of these little cards all in order. And then I would lean it up against the left side stand that drawer up and pull it up very carefully and that stack of all 200 of those in order would be standing on the left side of the machine and the right side would be empty and I would take the little drawer thing, little metal drawer and I would put it in the right side of the machine. 
and I'd flip the switch and start the thing working. And it would grab one of those plates off the bottom of that stack and slide it over. And then it would, every time it cycled, it would slide over again. When it got to the center, this little wheel, this little roller with ink on it, you had to put ink in the machine and everything, would just squoosh down on the plate and it would print Uncle Charlie's address on that piece of paper. The machine would cycle and that card would move over. They would all move over and they're feeding off the bottom of this big tall stack. And they're stacking up over on the right hand side. And when you were all done running those 250, you'd stop the machine and you'd carefully lift all those plates out in that drawer, put them back in the file cabinet, pull out the next one, run the next stack of 250. And these little plates just move along, silk screening the address onto this piece of paper, which was indexing forward and being uh, taken up on a spool underneath the machine. So you do drawer one, drawer two, drawer three, four, five, six, seven. I think this machine was called an addressograph machine. Well, one day, I'm, I'm along about, I don't know, tray four. I'm just watching this machine going ka-chunk, 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 and the little plates stacking up and everything's looking good. You know, they gave me the five minutes of instruction of how to run this thing. I, I felt like some sort of genius back there operating this machine. For a buck sixty an hour, by the way, I, will, I do remember that. Well, here's what happened. I'm feeling really good. They're sitting on a little stool watching the machine go. And I've, I've run a complete stack of like 200, 250 names. And I'm lifting it up. And I went to put it in the drawer. And I tripped. And I dumped the whole dadgum trayful on the floor. It was just a big pile. And everything was all mixed up. Luckily, I'd already printed those. So I just kind of scooped them over to the side and continued. Went to the next drawer. Didn't have any more mishaps. But at the end of the end of the night, after I'd finished running this strip of paper, creating the mailing labels, which I'm not gonna, this would take an hour for me to describe then how those ended up on the newspapers, but I'm not gonna talk about that today. Save that for some other time. At the end of the night, I had to go through every one of those little things and they were very difficult to see because they were inky and basically you had to hold them up to a light bulb and kind of look at them to read what was on them. I had to put all 200 and something of them back in the correct order. That's what I got to do with these emails. Now they're all mixed up and I don't know what order they're in. So I guess history repeats. Anyway, let me read this article. Lessons from the dog, D-A-W-G, you know him. Here, here it is. I'm just going to read through it. i got to get my glasses on. Sorry. Hold on a second. So that uh, you will be able to tell your friends you heard me actually read this thing to you. Here we go. Lessons from the dog. No, not him. You can learn a lot from him, but I mean those four-footed rascals who freeload around our houses. Have you ever watched two dogs playing with a ball? I spent many happy hours doing that with my two dogs, Barbie and Ginger. Sometimes I was part of the game and sometimes the dogs would just go on without me 
and I would just observe. Here is how the game usually played out. I would show the dogs the tennis ball, and Barbie would get very excited. She would bark until I threw the ball. She would not take her eyes off that ball even for an instant. Ginger, on the other hand, didn't seem that interested in the ball, but continued trotting around in circles, seemingly unaware that the game was about to start. Then I would throw the ball way out across the field, and Barbie would race across the grass. She was able to predict with great accuracy the trajectory of the ball and would rarely miss catching the ball. Sometimes she might get it on the first hop. Ginger was not really interested in the ball, but very aware that Barbie was speeding across the field. And she would also race across the field in pursuit, not of the ball, but of fun itself. At the moment Barbie snagged the tennis ball and stopped, Ginger would often continue running for another 20 yards, not realizing that Barbie had caught the ball and stopped with it. Eventually, turning and spotting Barbie, who was at this point laying down and gnawing the ball joyously, Ginger would run back to Barbie and pounce at the ground in front of her. Ginger would run back and forth in front of Barbie, attempting to goad her into running again. Barbie would then trot back to me, ball in mouth, with Ginger running circles around her the entire way. Barbie would shove the ball between my thighs, just jamming it in there with her snout, and then backing up a step or two, she would bark, commanding me to repeat the process. She wouldn't put it in my hand. I don't know why, it's just her way. This game might go on for some time until eventually Barbie would get a little tired and just stay out in the field with the ball. Ginger would race along with Barbie, but she rarely seemed to even notice the ball. I think it would be better to say that she knew about the ball and the power it held over Barbie, but didn't see the ball as anything other than the catalyst for the game. She knew that the ball meant the race would take place, but only Barbie actually cared about the ball. Then, Barbie would lay the ball on the ground between her outstretched front legs while laying there in the grass. Ginger would eventually notice the ball just sitting there and would make little attacks to try to snatch the ball from Barbie's control. Ginger was only interested in taking the ball so she could restart the running game. Barbie would tease Ginger with the ball and then pick it up in her mouth at the last instant just as Ginger ran close enough to grab it. Then, at just the moment when Barbie thought Ginger might lose interest in the ball, she would leave it between her paws and allow Ginger to grab the ball on her next attempt. Ginger, suddenly aware that she had the ball, would take off across the field, and Barbie leaped up and followed in hot pursuit. Ginger would run in wide circles, always looking back from time to time to be sure Barbie was on her tail. If Barbie fell behind or stopped, Ginger would face Barbie and just drop the ball from her mouth and almost dare Barbie to come and get it. The ball would lay there between them, and if Barbie took a step towards Ginger, Ginger would pick it up and run again. Barbie was pretty clever 
and usually got the ball back through some misdirection scheme, as Ginger's real interest was not in the ball, but in running and racing. Barbie's real love was the ball itself. She loved to catch it. She would return it, but only so she could catch it again. And she loved to gnaw on it and slobber on it. Ginger could catch the ball, but often missed, even when I threw it near her. She would come within an inch of catching it, but would just keep her mouth open and it would go right through. She just never really tried to catch it. She chased after it and ran right on past. The ball was not the goal to her. It was the running. She dearly loves to run. I have seen similarities between this dog game and the bluegrass bands I play with. The first similarity is that the game always seems the same, yet there are millions of possibilities for how the game is actually played out. The neighbor across the street sees that guy playing with his dogs, but every game was different. The number of tosses, the paths the dog took, the number of throws, the length of the game, the infinite number of minute differences from one game to the next. No game of ball was ever the same, yet they were all the same. This is true for baseball, elections, mowing the lawn, driving to the grocery store, or playing a bluegrass song. It's like a face. Everybody has two eyes, a nose, a mouth, a chin, etc. They are all different and shaped and arranged differently. But any goofball can look at them and say, that's a face. A casual observer can recognize that a bluegrass band is playing a song. But in millions of small ways, the song takes place in different ways each time it is played. But it's still a bluegrass song. Always different, yet always the same. The tiny differences from one version to the next are what keep a certain type of true diehard music fan coming back time after time to hear the same old songs. I dare say that I have never played a solo to a song the same way twice. In fact, it may well be impossible to do so. It might sound the same taken in an overall way, because I strung together the same licks and went to the same places on the fingerboard, and yet it cannot possibly be exactly the same as the last time I played it. Sometimes I tried deliberately to make one version different from the last. But whether you try to or not, it will be different in some way. Try to play old Joe Clark ten times in a row, exactly the same each time. It cannot be done. Now, some members of the audience, or the band, if they never really listen to you, might think you played it the same. That is because they didn't discern the minute differences. You yourself might not even be able to tell the differences. But they are there. Another similarity of the dog ball scenario to a bluegrass band in full swing is the interplay between the players. Barbie, alone with the tennis ball, would probably just lay there and chew on the thing. The game cannot take place alone. 
The same is true for bluegrass music. The music can only happen when multiple players play together. Any fool with a mandolin can tell the difference between sitting in the living room playing Salt Creek alone and doing the song with a bass player, banjo player, guitar player, and a fiddle player. The bluegrass game only happens when the entire group is involved. Also, notice the role playing the dogs nat naturally acted out in the dog ball game. Barbie's interest was mostly in catching the ball. Ginger's interest was mostly in running. Ginger, let out of the pen alone, would not run. She wanted to run with Barbie. Each player in a bluegrass band has different motivations for doing what they do. They are not all the same. One person may get his kicks from racing through breakdowns, and the next might love a good slow tune. Some people like to jam and explore the unexpected, and others like to attempt to repeat with accuracy some previously determined arrangement each time. And, most likely, each player at times leans toward one tendency or another. Each player is different in infinitely small ways each time, yet always the same. Like the game as a whole, if you can be aware of the smallest changes, you will better understand each other player. Knowing what really drives a player to be playing bluegrass is important in trying to create opportunities for them to contribute at the highest level of active interest. I think of Ginger snatching the ball from Barbie. She didn't really want the ball, but she knew Barbie did. And by running off with the ball, she motivated Barbie. Barbie, knowing that Ginger knew of the ball's importance to the game, would lure Ginger with it by leaving it unattended. Seemingly unattended. Finding the right mix of players is important, too. It provides the band and the audience with a more varied and fulfilling musical experience. If I had two dogs who just wanted to run they would probably take off and not be seen for three days. There are bands like that. They are mostly found in the outer reaches of festival parking lots with nobody standing around watching them. Nobody wants to watch or listen to them. Their game is for their own amusement only. On the other hand, if both dogs were intent on catching the ball on every toss, if they absolutely both had to have the ball, fights would likely break out. Continuously try to be aware of the interests and motivations of the people you play with, and the game will be more fun for everyone. But be careful. You might think you know what revs the banjo player's motor, but be dead wrong. People change. Their motivations and needs change, sometimes from minute to minute. Try to see what makes them tick. Watch the other players in the group. With some practice, you can learn to notice whether they are into it or just running along. Look for ways to give everyone in the group what they are looking for. And foster an environment where the reciprocal is true. If you do this, the game will be more fun and you'll play better music. 
It doesn't have to be about you all the time. Sometimes you are along just for the ride for a few minutes. Try to give the other guy what he's looking for, and he will be more likely to do the same for you. Now, go play with your dog. I hope y'all enjoyed that little, <laughs> that little reading from my old newsletter. And uh, I'll be back in the next episode. Y'all take it easy. That's what I'm doing right here in the dog days of summer. Talk to you soon.